Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into the show, here's a word from our partners this partners year. This year. This year, my intention was to work closely with businesses who were doing their very best to enhance our wellness and keep us in the best shape, especially since we are in this damn lockdown again. When I endeavoured to find some, I didn't have to look too far as they'd been around me for a very long time. So, the first sponsor I want to introduce is Herbie Box. I am a tea fiend. I'm currently drinking one of their teas right now and I love tea um, and I love herbal teas but the guys over at Herbie Box have shared with me a discount code for you time to talk listeners to get 10% off of your one-time purchases on their two boxes immune and athene so a brief bit about their immune box so immune is their signature seven-day booster herbal blend it nourishes the body, promotes calm, and helps increase the body's natural defenses. So if you love aromatic tasting teas, this blend is for you. Find out why so many immune reviews mention more energy, more sleep, more calm, better digestion, and general feelings of well-being. Their Athene box is for the brain. So this one is a lot more to do with focus, to do with energy, to do with power, to do with mood. And it just gives you a bit more sharpness and a way to relax so these are some of the reasons why people love athene as well it kind of gives them an energy boost they are specially crafted herb vials which you get seven in a box and herby box have created this community event called a herby week where you take the seven herbs in the vial and you just drink them throughout the week and it's a way to reset and rejuvenate the body outside of the month because, you know, a lot of the time we forget about what we're, what we're ingesting and a lot of the stress that we have, we kind of put away and it kind of goes into different parts of the body. So it's good to have something that helps heal the inside as well as us kind of focusing on our external, especially in this new year, everyone's going to be wanting to get fit, get better, do all that stuff, but we need to really focus on what's going inside us. Okay, so if you want 10% off of your one time purchase at Herbie Box, head over to herbiebox.com. That's H E R B Y box.com. And at checkout, use discount code Alex Holmes 10. So that's Alex Holmes 10. And tell them I sent you. And trust me, you won't go wrong with your seven day herbal blend. This episode is also brought to you by Beardfluence. All right, so we are in a lockdown but your beard doesn't have to be. <laughs> More time 
I have been looking patchy patchy, especially in the very first lockdown that we had last year. But this doesn't have to be the fate of your lockdown buddy, your male friend or family member as Beerfluence is offering you 15% off site-wide when you use the code time to talk 2021 So that's time to talk 2021 That's 15% off of their Kensington set, which is inclusive of a boar bristle brush, comb and scissors. Everything comes gift-wrapped as a gift to yourself or to someone else. And a little bit about Beardfluence is that it's a high-performance beard care brand focused on targeted treatments such as promoting better growth and helping conditioning. Their flagship product is the Beardfluence Night Oil and is powered by the scent of sandalwood, growth-promoting castor and peppermint oil, and the hemp seed oil, which helps resolve beard itching. So all you have to do is go to their Instagram at HQ and have a look at the rave reviews to know that it is good for you, your man, and your entanglement. But we don't promote entanglements on this show. We don't do that. So what I'm going to say is that you have to get detangled and get detangled with Beardfluence. Let them know I sent you. So let's get on with the show, with the show. We do live in this age of what I call the tyranny of the now. You know, our politicians can't see past the next election. Businesses can't see past the next quarterly report. Markets spike, then crash in speculative bubbles. Nations sit around international conference tables, bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. And as individuals, you know, we are flicking on our phones, scrolling away and clicking the buy now button. And we know that we need more long-term thinking, right? We need it to plan for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon. We need it to deal with threats from artificial intelligence or um, other technologies coming our way. We need it to deal with the climate crisis. We need it to deal with racial injustice, which gets passed on from generation to generation, a long-term problem embedded in race, in uh, you know colonialism and slavery. And, you know, this is something which is goes from the past through the present and into the future so we need long-term thinking to deal with all of that stuff hi guys i'm alex holmes and this is time to talk to talk so happy new year welcome forward to 2021 looking forward to bringing you wholehearted conversations compassionate musings and chats around mental health and wellness so thank you so much for coming back and coming forward guys if you're new each week on time to talk i speak to experts in their field about how we can become more compassionate more wholehearted and more open with ourselves and others and what this means for our mental health and wellness and the way we live today today so i hope you had a great new year it's not the new year that we planned but it's the new year that we had and we got so i hope it was a good new year for you guys and I hope these these new episodes will be a guiding light for you in this what is set to be a very crazy year. This week we have a very exciting conversation. We have public philosopher Roman Krisnarik talking to us about what it means to be a good ancestor. He wrote a book called The Good Ancestor, and I have to credit Roman with helping me think a lot more about legacy and the way we show up for our future generations especially in these times of Black Lives Matter, coronavirus, Trump, and a severely divided America, and Brexit with a severely divided Britain. All right, so let's welcome Roman Krisnarik to the show. Check out his book. Go over to wherever you buy books. 
my book list, my book and reading list is on alexholmes.co. So if you want to go there, you can have a look for The Good Ancestor and buy it from ukbookshops.org where we can support bookshops in the UK, independent and local. Um, so yeah, let's welcome Roman Krisnarek to the show. Hi Roman, and welcome to Time to Talk. Fantastic to be here, Alex. Looking forward to the explorations <laughs> we're going to have Yes, yes. Um, before we get into anything too deep and too explorative, I wanted to ask, what does a public philosopher do? Well, a public philosopher is a term I've stolen from the Netherlands, where they have this word public philosopher, which doesn't really be used in, in the UK or the US or anywhere like that. And for me, a public philosopher is about talking about the big ideas in life, which is what the ancient Greek idea of philosophy was about. Who am I? How to be good? All that kind of stuff. But the public yeah. bit is about trying to make it relevant, not just for individual life, but for our communal lives, for the way we work together as a, as a society. So mm-hmm. for me, philosophy has always been about both the art of living and about social change and social transformation. So that's why I like that term, public philosopher. And also, you know, I'm not an academic. I used to actually be a political scientist 20, 25 years ago, a long time ago. Um, And really, I also like that term, public philosopher, because it's sort of the opposite, at least for me, of an academic philosopher who's kind of looking inside their own navel. Not that they all do that, but there is a tendency. (laughs) Yeah, I find that I found it a very interesting... um, kind of title and direction to have because I feel like we you know we, we have public intellectuals and even then I, I I'm still a bit I still a bit confused in as to what that means a lot of the time um but public philosopher was curious to me because I love philosophy and I love questioning things and I love like trying to delve into the deeper meanings of of, of life I mean that's the kind of nature of this podcast it's why why we do things, why we do the things we do, and how we can be more compassionate, how, can, how we can be better with that. And um, I wanted to ask you what your definition of compassion is. Uh, um, everybody's tends to be different, and I'm always curious as to what yours is. Well, what I'm going to say might be slightly heretical, but I tend not to use the word <laughs> compassion. Hmm. And that's partly because I've written a book about empathy, Uh, in which I explore partly the differences between empathy and compassion. So as you probably know, if you open a psychology textbook, there's two kinds of empathy definitions that are normally there. One is what's called affective empathy, and the other one's called cognitive or perspective-taking empathy. And affective empathy is about sharing or mirroring someone's emotions. So say you see anguish on a child's face, you too feel anguish, that's what psychologists call affective empathy. Say you look at the anguish on the child's face and you feel a different emotion like pity. Well, that's what psychologists tend to call sympathy. That's an emotional response, but one that isn't shared. So there's that. That's affective empathy. Then you've got cognitive empathy or perspective-taking empathy. That's about really trying to imagine somebody else's point of view, how they see the world. So you're walking past a homeless guy on the street and you stop and think to yourself, what is it like to be walked past without someone looking you in the eye? Or, um, you know, what's it like to be sleeping out rough on a cold winter's night? So that's what perspective taking empathy or cognitive empathy is about. So that's, that's the empathy side. So then when you turn to compassion, I actually find compassion quite a complex word because literally the, 
the meaning, the etymology of it is to share in the suffering of another, compassion, right? Those two words. Mm -hmm. But of course, what interests me is not just sharing suffering, but also sharing someone's joys. You know, if I look into my kid's face and I see joy in their face, I, you know, I can have that response too. And I think that's really important to share the whole range of emotions. And then I think the other thing about compassion is that, of course, it's got different meanings in different traditions. So, you know, in the Christian tradition, it's often been about a, a sympathy, um, you know, some kind of an emotional response, not necessarily a shared one. And then you've got in the Buddhist tradition, um, the word compassion often is pretty much similar to what I described as cognitive empathy, about really trying to mm. understand the perspective of, of another. So, for example, in some kinds of Buddhist meditation, like metta meditation, you try and imagine the perspective of strangers or people outside your family, what they're going through, their suffering. That's very much about cognitive empathy. So, you know, you know, yeah. it's not that I'm against the word compassion. I just think like, I guess this is my philosophical side. I like unpacking some of these things. But for me, out of all of those different terms I've just talked about and different definitions, the thing that really drives me as a person is the perspective taking empathy the cognitive empathy to try and imagine the perspective of someone different from you because it seems to me that that is so crucial on the one hand to making our relationships work like you know you've been you can we've all been in these situations where you're arguing with your partner or husband or wife or whatever and you just think to yourself oh god i wish they could see things from my point of view i wish they could understand where i'm coming from that's what cognitive mm. empathy is about so there's that but I also think that cognitive empathy is really vital for social relations. You know, I grew up in Australia, right, where a yeah. country that was colonized um, and indigenous populations colonized. And yet when I was growing up, we were taught nothing about the indigenous Australian perspective on that invasion of the country. So, you know, if you, you know, for, from the indigenous Australian perspective, the the British coming to Australia was an invasion, right? But I never grew up using that word invasion. That wasn't part of the school curriculum. And cognitive empathy is partly about trying to take that perspective of the other, you know, people who've got different experiences, maybe for cultural, historical reasons, see the world differently from you. And that's part of, I think, what knits the world together. Mm. That's very interesting because that does lead into kind of into your book, The Good Ancestor, and what that looks like and how um, generations can be so far removed from one another. And like it's that it's that idea of hiding um, a history or hiding something, just kind of covering it with shame, and then people grow up with a kind of displacement and a disconnection with where they've come from. And I just find that a very, very interesting, uh, interesting connection and cognitive empathy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I looked at it and I think that there was a, I've been looking at this quite a bit cause I'm just, I'm just so curious as to when my understanding of empathy and it's the idea of kind of step, stepping into another person's shoes and really feeling everything that they're feeling that that real deep kind of um if you're angry i feel that anger with you and like i'm, I'm so sensitive to a lot of things I, I tend to feel a mood in the room when i walk in and i'm like oh what's going on i can tell when like you know a member of my family or friends are really upset and they're trying to hide it and i, I can just feel by the energy that's going so when it comes to compassion it's like it's for me i just always looked at it as a as a 
I care about what's happening. I care about, you know, I want to try and help you kind of relieve that, that suffering. Uh, but I can't pretend to know exactly how you feel because that can become quite patronizing. Especially, sure, that's uh, right. Absolutely. When, it can be very patronizing if you pretend you can really understand everything someone's going through or their suffering or their experience or whatever it is. So it's always about, I think, trying to make the effort to recognize that someone has a different way of looking at things from you. Yeah. So thank you for being here to talk about your book, The Good Ancestor. Um, and, you know, The Good Ancestor, how to think long-term in a short-term world. And I have a particular relationship with with, with all of these words. Tell together. me about them. Tell me. I want to know. <laughs> so when we think about uh, when we look at the way that we are that we that we operate as people now, um, I'm very I'm very interested in the concept of slow thinking, of kind of not rushing to a decision, having thoughts. Like if you sometimes someone presents you with an idea, I like to think about it and think, okay, what do I feel about this? Rather than just kind of to jump at stuff, because um, I'm thinking to myself like over time I'm gonna my opinion is going to change. I'm going to feel a different way, but also I want to be very clear with kind of where my process is coming from. Um, and it's interesting because when we look at things like social media and we look at like on Instagram and um, I share a lot of writing on Instagram and a lot of people have told me and they say a lot of things like, Oh, um, people's attention spans aren't there. They're very short. They're very short. They're very, uh, they've very short attention spans. It's very short time. Um, when I write things, uh, I used to, I used to be a journalist. Well, I used to be a full-time news reporter. So everything had to be quick, 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 quick and out for the deadline. And then you're onto the next thing. Whereas I think, whereas I thrived when I had the interviews that were long form, which is probably like the, the basis of, of this podcast as well. So I'm thinking, and when you, when you've said, how to think long-term in a short-term world. Everything that I have seen is short-term. Like everything <laughs> is everything is like, oh, even, okay, so when, 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 corona, um, when corona arrived on our doorsteps <laughs> and, and nobody was ready for her visit, we had, we decided that we needed to build hospitals. Everything needed to happen straight away. Everything had to happen this that and the other obviously nobody knows when a pandemic is going to come i mean there were warning signs i would imagine like uh, like beginning of the year we had heard of this virus and all of a sudden it's everywhere now but it's the thinking of the things that you know we're just going to implement something for a short-term result a short-term resolution we hike up the prices for um for for travel in london just because we need the money ASAP or we're going to hike up taxes. We're going to take this away. We're going to say, okay, you can all go out and eat now. Um, for like, and we're going to get, everybody's going to get a, a certain amount of percentage off because it's to eat out, to help out the community and do all this different things. These very short term ideas that everybody cottons onto, but they're never thinking about the long term ramifications and the long term effects. And we saw a lot of that when it comes to, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to we had protests and um, people were talking about, oh, the climate change people, X, Y, Z. When we had the Black Lives Matter protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, are X, Y, Z. All these people fighting for long-term change, but, but being lambasted because 
of, of very short-term things and nobody is thinking about it. So that's the relationship I have with the title. So before I even opened the book, I was like, all of this stuff was just flooding through my mind. But that's mind. brilliant. That's exactly but, it, right? Because we live in yeah. this world of the tyranny of the now. The tyranny of the now. Everything must happen now. Everything has to happen now. I have to have an answer now. And so there's no, there's never a time that more than this book needing to be here now. And you've got, a, I want to say it's a poem in the front of the book, um, or it could be a quote, I, I, I don't know, but by Drew Dellinger. Um, and it says, it's 3.23 in the morning and I can't sleep because my great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, what did you do while this earth was unraveling? Guys, this is the first page before you even get any further <laughs> yeah. into anything. Else. It's pretty so... full on that actually. It is actually from a poem. <laughs> it's it's the it's yeah. the end of a poem by Drew Dellinger. Really wonderful, yeah. moving poem. Yeah, it's a and it's a beautiful verse because when I'm looking at my nieces and nephews, um, and I'm looking at them and I'm thinking, you guys are like three now. What is the world going to look like in 17, 18 years time when you were 21 and you are adults in this world? What is, what are we, what are we doing? So what is a good ancestor? <laughs> because um, that's, that's where we're going to start. What is a good ancestor? Well, I think we've already got into it with what you were just saying there. I mean, this is really about something deeply emotional and about human connection when it comes down to it. You know, on the one hand, we do live in this age of what I call the tyranny of the now. You know, our politicians can't see past the next election. Businesses can't see past the next quarterly report. Markets spike, then crash in speculative bubbles. Nations sit around international conference tables, bickering away while the planet burns and species disappear. And as individuals, you know, we are flicking on our phones, scrolling away and clicking the buy now button. And we know that we need more long-term thinking, right? We need it to plan for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon. We need it to deal with threats from artificial intelligence or um, other technologies coming our way. We need it to deal with the climate crisis. We need it to deal with racial injustice, which gets passed on from generation to generation, a long-term problem embedded in race, in uh, you know colonialism and slavery and you know, this is something which is goes from the past through the present and into the future. So we need long-term thinking to deal with all of that stuff, you know. And mm -hmm. maybe it's because that's maybe why, you know, when you look at, at the, the title of that book, the book, you know, The Good Ancestor and Long-Term Thinking in Short-Term World, so much can come up for people because we're all thinking about the future in different ways. And, and as you were saying there with your nephews and nieces, you know, even though we might be constantly looking at our phones, we have these people in our lives that we know who we know are going to live probably beyond our own lives. I mean, my kids, I've got twins who are now 12. Well, my son could easily be alive in the year 2100. And then if he has children or grandchildren, they could be alive well towards the end of the 22nd century. So their future isn't science fiction. It's an intimate family fact. And... Mm. At, this, at the root of it, in a sense, has something to do with the way that we think about death. You know, that most human beings, 
when they reach midlife at some point, start thinking about the legacy that they're going to leave. You know, how are they going to be remembered when they're gone? No matter what religion or culture they're from, what socioeconomic background, you know, because we we have this fear of death, you know, that's sort of mm. built into us. Um, and there's something kind of beautiful about that in its in its way, because it allows us to start thinking beyond our own egos, right? What is going to happen when I'm gone? And we care about the legacies we leave, but of course, people express the legacies they want to leave in very different ways. So you might get a Russian oligarch who wants to be remembered by having a wing of the National Gallery or a football stadium named after them, which is a very kind of egocentric form of legacy. I think a lot of us, you know, particularly people with children or, um, you know, other relatives want to leave something to people from our families. They want to pass down, whether it's property or religion or culture and traditions. But I think the whole idea of being a good ancestor, to really come to your question, actually, is to think about leaving a legacy for something bigger, for the universal strangers of the of the future, for the planet itself, something much bigger than us, something that transcends us. And that concept of the good ancestor, I first came across it in the writings of um, the immunologist Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine in the 1950s. And he said, the big question facing our society is, are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by the generations of the future? And he believed that if, yeah. we, if we were going to be remembered well, he basically thought, and if we were going to confront problems like a destruction of the living world and a nuclear threat and all sorts of stuff, we needed to extend our time horizon. So instead of thinking on a scale of seconds, minutes, and hours, we needed to think on a scale of decades, centuries, and millennia. And that really is the task I set myself in that book. Is it actually even possible? And how do we go about extending our temporal perspective? that far mm, yeah a lot of people um and i think just over and throughout conversation is they mention how china are very forward thinking or long-term thinking uh, as a nation do you agree with that as a statement china's a really interesting case because i think what you find is cultures which have for example long traditions of, for example, ancestor worship tend to be also very good at looking long term. So, for example, mm -hmm. um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in Maori culture, there's this concept called um, whakapapa, which is the Maori word for genealogy. It's this sense that you're in a long chain of life going far into the past and long into the future. And the light happens to be shining here and now, but the point is to really broaden the light so you sort of feel the living, the dead and the unborn all here in the room with us. And I think China also kind of fits in that category. There's long traditions of ancestor worship. So I actually grew up as a teenager in Hong Kong in Chinese culture. And there, used, there was the, there's this festival called the Festival of Hungry Ghosts, where you, every year you are honoring your ancestors um, and, and, and putting out meals for your dead ancestors and that kind of thing. They're there in the room with you in some sense. And it's exactly those cultures that do tend to have long-term vision. Of course, China... You know, the way at least people in the Chinese government talk about it, they say, well, look, we're a civilization that's been around five or 6,000 years. And that immediately gives them this long-term perspective. At the same time, there's full of contradictions there too. So 
You know, you can go yeah. to a Chinese city where they've totally smashed down an old ancient medieval part of Shanghai or whatever, and they're putting up buildings which are only going to last for 10 or 20 years before they smash those down as, down as well. Or, you know, consumer capitalist culture, which is rife in China as it is in other parts of the world, can be incredibly mm. short term. So, you know, I think we're, we're all full of contradictions uh, in a way yeah. as individuals and as cultures. Yeah. It reminds me, have you seen Coco? No. On Disney on Disney. Oh, is that that's the one set about the Day of the Dead in Mexico. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes. brilliant. Yeah, I watched As that. you were yeah, I love that. I watched that I've watched that so many times. I just love the I love the ideas in it. Um and I love the the experience that, you know, that people in Mexico celebrate that and why they celebrate it. And um and it does make me think a lot because I was I come from well as a West Indian man from a um, within a Jamaican family, we do have these questions about ancestors, ancestors, our grandparents, and our grandparents' grandparents, and trying to find that. And you know, by being a black person, a lot of the history is kind of, it gets murky as you get several generations back because nobody knows where where things are placed, where things are, are landed. And that is a very interesting point you put out. Um, you know, where there's ancestor worship, you tend to look a bit more long-term. And I think in watching um, Black Panther, there was a scene, I don't know if you've seen Black Panther, um, but yeah, there's a scene when Killmonger starts to burn everything. And um, I think the idea was that once you burn any trace of the history, there is nothing for anybody to look back to and nothing for anybody to look back on. And when we and and that's and that's and that's all just come up just by what you said about ancestor worship because how can you see what was done and then how can you kind of envisage what is to come and what can and how can you you know create a world that actually we aspire to to want to live to want to live in or want our family and what our, our, our the people that we love to see and um so if we kind of like scale back over to the United Kingdom, like 2020. <laughs> from um, Wakanda to the United Kingdom, we can do it Wakanda all. and like, you know, um, all the way down. So talk to me about the, um, uh, a concept in your book, an idea in your book of, uh, about pathological short-termism. Sure. And then we'll get on to <laughs> long-termism. And I, cause I love those two concepts. So if you want to talk to me about pathological short-termism, we can get into Well, that. it's funny actually, cause the ultimate kind of short-termism in some way, I never really quite thought about this in this way until you were just speaking then, is to have no history, you know, to have no sense of the past, to be so just caught up in the short-term cycles of the now. And that's deeply problematic, I think. In a way, it goes back to what I was saying about legacy, because we need to recognize, I think, the positive legacies we've inherited from the past. So, for example, you know, the medical discoveries that we benefit from or the cities we still live in. And then we have to also grasp the destructive legacies that we may have been part of. So, say, legacies of slavery and colonialism that create deep injustices that now must be repaired or legacies of economies that are structurally addicted to fossil fuels and endless growth that we now need to transform. And having that long-term perspective into the past enables us to ask that question of, okay, how can we be good ancestors? How can we leave something better than we inherited? You know, how can I treat future generations how I would wish past generations to have treated me? Um, mm -hmm. And then wrapped up on top of all of that, we've got these 
pathological short-termist drivers in society which keep us focused on the here and now. You know, we've got speculative capitalism, we've got political presentism, you know, all those short-term electoral cycles, we've got digital distraction with, you know, the big tech companies keeping us immersed in the present and swiping away. But there's also deeper aspects of that too, and we need to understand the history of short-termism. So, for example, if you think about the history of the clock, you know, you were just saying you're really interested in slow thinking and slow time. Well, time has been speeding up, at least in Western culture, for at least about five or 600 years since the first clocks, mechanical clocks were invented in medieval Europe and started measuring time and speeding it up. You know, by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. So the clock became one of the key machines of the Industrial Revolution, keeping those assembly lines moving faster and faster and faster. Um, and then, of course, now we've got nanosecond speed share trading and things like that. So yeah. I think if we're going to liberate ourselves from short-termism, we need to understand some of those things which are driving us in that direction. That's partly you know, part of what my book's mm. about. And then I also talk about, well, then, then where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah. A quick point on time. Being a West Indian child, um, they don't, when you go to the West Indies, you go to the Caribbean, they operate on a completely different time schedule to everybody else in the world. I just feel like you end up in a time warp. Everything just, I don't even know if there's a such thing as opening hours in certain places. It's just, you are here now. That is when you are here. They, people will spend all day lining up to go to go to the tax office or wherever it needs to go. When I was um, teaching abroad in reunion in the Indian Ocean, again, slow, very slow, everything. There was no rush. Like the bus, the bus is not coming for 45 minutes. Great. It means I can sit at the cafe. I can chill. I can have a, have a snack. I can walk about for a bit, go into a different shop and whatnot. When you were in Australia, what was that like growing up, especially... Oh, you, and you even said you were in Hong Kong. Like, what was what was time like for you? Did yeah. you did, was was it a rush? Was it a, a hustle and a bustle? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because, um, you know, of course, I was growing up in suburban Sydney and then in hyper capitalist Hong Kong, very much in immersed in Western time culture. That speeding up clock. In fact, you just brought back a kind of forgotten memory. Uh, Alex, that when my mum died when I was about 10, I used to I had oh. this digital watch and I used to love playing tennis. I used to play all these tennis tournaments. But when my mum died, I developed this obsessive compulsive habit of always looking at my watch between shots that I hit, even in a big tennis tournament, to check the time on my digital, the digital reader. So mm. it was like in a, that deep obsession with time that I had in my own life which was kind of giving me a kind of security, but it also mirrored a kind of Western obsession with time. And I think my own attitude to time didn't really get transformed till I went and worked with refugees in Guatemala with Mayan indigenous communities, where the approach to time was very much like the kind of West Indian time that you were talking about. You know, you'd sit and I'd say, well, when's the next bus? And someone would say, well, it's coming, you know, pretty soon, or it's coming a little later. Well, five hours later, the bus comes, you know, and <laughs> you get used to that. And then I swore after my time living in, I lived, I lived in a jungle village for quite some time with no electricity or running water or anything. 
And I swore when I came back to living in, in London at that time, back in my 20s, that I would never feel rushed again. But, you know, within a few weeks, I'm waiting impatiently for the tube as much as anybody else. So it's really hard to, I guess, recalibrate your own clock. Yet we are mm. also, I think, as living, breathing beings, we have different time cycles as part of our natures. Of course, we've got our breathing cycle, which is, you know, happening every second and things like that. And then women have men menstrual cycles. We've got seasons that our bodies can respond to in all sorts of different ways. And I think we need to, in a way, get back in touch with the ecological choreography of the planet that we've lost touch with, with those seasons, with the movement of the stars. And that's what you find so much in indigenous mm. cultures. You know, that's why, mm. you know, in my book, I talk about the Native American idea of seventh generation decision making which is a kind of principle of ecological stewardship, which is about respecting people and planet for at least 150, 200 years, trying to think about those generations in the future and leaving the world a better place for them than you found it. And that really comes from connecting with longer time cycles, ultimately. Mm. I think that that is one of the big things that I've shown up for me especially since covid has decided to ground everybody um in particular ways because um my own personal experience with all of that is that i was rushing i was it was i was going to coffees i was going here, here there and ever i was out i was kind of on the tube this way on the tube that way going to see friends across the city whatnot um um, it was once you're underground, you're hustling, you're bustling, you're trying to get to where you need to go because everybody is going somewhere important. So like everybody is trying to, that everybody's importance trumps somebody else's importance, even if it's not that important where they're going. But, um, and then when COVID came and everybody, and locked and terms such as lockdown and um, stay at home and all of these things came down, it slowed people down and nobody, and knew what to do with themselves. Some people like myself adapted very well to the, I don't, I'm so happy just to not have to run outside all the time, but it's something, <laughs> and I just feel like it's something so natural to, to just be able to relax and just be like, okay, I can do this at this time. I don't have to rush to go to here or whatever, but it feels so alien to a lot of people, um, you know, that they, that it's, it does a lot for people's mental health. It does a lot for people's um, physical health. And um, I, it just made me, it, I think, if anything, this just revealed a lot about the way that we view things as a culture. And I'm hoping Yeah, well, it it's change. interesting that I think it also, you know, not only does a lot for our mental health, but it does a lot for the way our communities function too. I mean, you were, as you were talking, I was just thinking about how when lockdown happened um, in my street where we didn't normally really talk to each other very much, we immediately set up a WhatsApp group to, um, you know, it soon had about over 100 people in it, you know, just to deliver food to vulnerable people, or we started sharing bread recipes, and people were lending each other stuff. And that all happened, partly because of COVID, you know, but partly also because it was recalibrating our sense of time, we had more time, you know, so people are sitting around baking, you know, or, or whatever it is, yeah. or giving their time, you know, to go and do shopping for someone who couldn't go out or, or whatever it was. And, in a way, it just tells us that time is a really important aspect of what binds 
societies together, which what makes communities work. And if you if you're constantly rushing, 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 you're getting more and more into your own small world, almost certainly. Yeah, I think, and one of the yeah, one of the biggest things um, that I realized as well was when we were clapping for the NHS, and we could we go outside, and I would see all of my neighbors, and I was like, oh my god, like there's so many. There's so many people just, here. <laughs> there's so many people here. What? And um, it's actually, and that, and that is crazy to think. And um, that you see a lot of people in isolation, like walking up and down. So you say hi, you recognize them and whatnot. But when they are standing outside of their families, we look at how there are all these individual bodies of people, like just on the street and everybody's looking at each other. And some of us, I mean, I've been on my road for quite a long time. So I've I've grown up here, and I've, I'm neighbors have seen everything. I've seen them grow up as well, and it's just one of those really interesting things. And when it was VE Day, one of my neighbors had a uh, kind of like a a social distanced gathering outside. It was warm as well, and um, where there were drinks and whatnot, and um, they were singing songs and the like. And it was a very communal feel. And everything was, every, again, everything was slowed down. Nobody had to go anywhere. It was just the evening. It was relaxed. And um, one of the our neighbor's moms, she was talking about history. She was talking about the war. She was talking about growing up in the war. She grew up just as V-Day happened, around eight. So she was talking about her memories there and kind of what that looks, what that looks like. And I just thought to myself, wow, like you've got all of these memories and now you're looking at us um, and, you, and you know, you celebrate it every year, but you're looking at us and you're thinking, this is this road that you've been on for how many years? You've seen it develop and change. You've seen the neighbours develop and change. And I just, and I found that such a powerful thing that, that COVID did, but something happened along the way um, just recently. And it was like, well, there was an opportunity to kind of, to, to hone in on, on those community aspects that could have really strengthened a lot of boroughs and a lot of local communities but and i don't and i think that opportunity was missed it's interesting though of course the whole thing about that sense of community which at least emerged or flowered for some time during covid even if it hasn't persisted raises really important questions about our connection with future generations because of course we can see everyone living around us on our street you know if we if we want to or make that effort to or if it so happens but how do we visualize or talk to or step into the shoes of people who aren't even born whose lives are going to be so affected by our actions and as you're speaking there it just reminded me of an art project which i'm involved in i founded uh, uh, an art um, organization called the empathy museum and yeah. one of the exhibits we have is called a mile in my shoes and it's a gigantic shoebox which travels around the world and you walk inside, it's the world's first empathy shoe shop. Someone will fit you with a pair of <laughs> shoes belonging to a stranger. Could be someone who's been in Wandsworth Prison for 14 years, or a Syrian refugee, or a Brazilian sex worker. And you can literally walk a mile in their actual shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words. And it's an incredibly intimate experience. And We've collected hundreds of shoes and stories from all over the place. And in fact, we've just got a new exhibit coming out called From Where I'm Standing, where we've talked to people who have been affected by COVID, um, nurses and doctors and 
cleaners and supermarket cashiers and students, all sorts of different people trying to grasp their perspective on, on this particular moment uh, of, of history. But mm. for me, a mile in my shoes does also raise that question of, well, then how do we step into those shoes of the people a hundred years from now who really have as much moral importance as those who are around today? I mean, if you think about it, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. Now an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died in the last 50,000 years. But over the next 50,000 years, an estimated nearly 7 trillion people will be born. Uh, if current, Assuming current birth rates stabilize. And in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people will be born. So how do we bring them into our minds? How do they become part of our communities today? That's the real challenge. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um I really liked uh, watching some of the videos of the Empathy Museum. And um, I think that was a funny bit. There's a guy who's just walking in high heels and he was listening to um, the story. I don't know who... Of a drag queen. He's actually listening to a story of a drag queen uh, whose yeah, high heels I, I they are. Like, I've worn those yeah, high yeah. heels. Very difficult to walk in, in my experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, and yeah, it, it, it does. I imagine that that makes you so much more empathetic. Um when you when they are telling their stories, uh, do you have like a a bunch of different translations or um, yeah, different translations of it of it, or is it all in English? Are they always in English? Yeah. So when we've done them abroad, um, they've been done in the person's own language, and and we've when we've done the exhibits, we've some, we've exhibited say Brazilian stories in Brazil, so they're in their own language. But we've also sometimes done translations. Um, and sometimes had actors or others do them. But it's quite difficult if you really want to be true to the person's voice and story, you know, to have somebody else speak it. Um, and then the, yeah. the process, though, is, you know, we try and really get to the heart of people's lives. So a 10-minute audio you might listen to is probably based on at least three or four hours of conversation with somebody. Um, mm -hmm. And they're always, you know, yeah. they, they approve and they're happy with what they listen to or what, what they say yeah. in their story. For sure, for sure. So let's go on to the six ways to think long. Um, so you've got a, in your book, you've got a kind of dia, a, is it a word, a diorama? The di a diagram um, of uh, the tug of war for time. And um, for each thing in the ways to think long, you have the equal thing for the, the representative for thinking in short term do you want should we go through them as yeah. a, as, we can as a, rattle through yeah. them at high speed we can, rattle, we, can, we can rattle through them at high speed so you've got i'm, just, I'm gonna read them out um so you've got deep time humility which is grasp we are in we are an eye blink in cosmic time uh we've got a legacy mindset which you mentioned a bit earlier on uh to be remembered well by posterity I only really got used to using the word posterity since reading, since watching um, Tenet <laughs> the other day. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a really interesting segue. Um, inter intergenerational justice. Consider the seventh uh, generation ahead. Uh, cathedral thinking. Plan projects beyond a human lifetime. Holistic forecasting. Envision multiple pathways for civilization. Transcendent goal. Strive for one planet thriving and um i wondered if you could kind of speak on cathedral thinking and holistic forecasting sure for me 
So cathedral thinking is that idea of embarking on projects and policies with time horizons stretching decades ahead, even beyond our own lifetimes. And it's named after medieval European cathedral builders, you know, who might start building a cathedral knowing it would never be finished within their own lives. So a famous example is from Almminster in southwest Germany, a Lutheran church, actually, um, where the good citizens of Ulm decided in 1377 they wanted to have their own church, finance it themselves. Well, they didn't finish building it for more than 500 years until 1890, probably the world's longest crowdfunding project. That's a classic example of cathedral thinking. But cathedral thinking isn't just about building cathedrals or mosques or synagogues or whatever it happens to be. I mean, there's also cathedral thinking in terms of public works projects. So in the 19th century in London, they built the sewers uh, after the great stink of 1858. You know, thousands of people were dying each year from cholera because raw sewage was being dumped in the Thames. And then uh, the the engineer, Joseph Bazalgette, and 22,000 workers spent 19 years building the sewers, which are still being used today. And they're built, built twice as big as they needed to be. That was long-term cathedral thinking. That's why they are still um, being used now. Um, but then you also get cathedral thinking in social and political movements. You know, if you think about the suffragettes whose first organization emerged in Manchester in 1867, they didn't achieve their aims more than 50 years. Or the U.S. civil rights movement, you know, has roots going back to the early 20th century. And those struggles are still going on today. Or the struggle for indigenous rights in Guatemala, where I've done a lot of research. Mm. These are long term struggles where those engaged know that it's not going to be achieving you're not going to achieve the aims you know tomorrow or next week next year maybe 10 years maybe longer than that so i think there's something really admirable in people who have that long-term cathedral thinking vision you know greta thunberg's famously talked about the fact that we need cathedral thinking to deal with the climate crisis on the other hand i'd have to say that cathedral thinking isn't always good for us because you can have a long-term vision right that's really directed to a narrow and self-serving end. I mean, Hitler wanted an 1,000-year Reich. That's long-term thinking. Or a former head Mm -hmm. of the investment bank, Goldman Sachs, once said, we're greedy, but long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. Well, that's a kind of long-term cathedral thinking too. So that's why cathedral thinking in and of itself is not enough. We need to connect it with ideas like intergenerational justice, so that your long-term thinking isn't just for yourself or people in your own bloodline or very narrow social group. Yeah. So it's more about thinking about, um, because I think like what you said about, you know, when you use the example of Hitler and, um, you know, and what the the Goldman Sachs guy said about greed and whatnot, do you think it's just a fact that the priorities are all over the place and... You know, is it just as simple as that? (laughs) I guess the way I think about it is that we are all, we all have struggles going on in our minds. We have, we're pulled in many, many directions. We're pulled between the me and the we, between our individualistic drives and our more communal social natures. You know, that's partly who we are. But we're also in a constant struggle between the short term and the long term. We have inside us what I think of as a a marshmallow brain and an acorn brain. The marshmallow brain is the part of our neuroanatomy, which focuses on short-term rewards and instant gratification. That's the pressing the buy now button bit. 
And it's named after the famous marshmallow test from the 1960s where kids had a marshmallow put in front of them. And if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow. Right? Um, and most of the kids you know, couldn't resist the snack. So they, they succumbed to that short-term drive. Though interestingly about yeah. the marshmallow test, it's very influenced by socioeconomic backgrounds. So kids from poorer backgrounds, for example, are more likely to snatch the marshmallow than kids from wealthier backgrounds who have more trust in the, in the, in the experimenters and stuff. Anyway, we've got the marshmallow brain, but that's in a struggle with our long-term, what I think was the acorn brain. That's the part which lives in our frontal lobe above our eyes, part of our neuroanatomy, which is all about long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And we're actually really good at this. That's how we, you know, save for our pensions or write song lists for our own funerals. It's the acorn brain in practice, which has helped us build the Great Wall of China and voyage into space. But, you know, we are still in this struggle between, you know, do I party today or do I save for my pension for tomorrow? Do I upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? So, you know, yeah. this, we are complex, right? We are we are constantly in these battles between me and we and short and long. Yeah. That acorn and marshmallow um, brain analogy is really, really interesting i remember actually seeing growing up there was that they did the same thing they did that experiment on kids but it was like they used haribos <laughs> right yeah, yeah. probably better than a marshmallow um, yeah because yeah, yeah, haribos are probably a bit sweeter a bit more yeah. tempting they um, also actually did it but, with pretzels in the u.s and it still had the same effect so all right okay i think it's something when you're told to take something maybe that's it that's another great yeah. flaw in the experiment basically it's about <laughs> defying authority yeah um, and I guess, yeah, the instant gratification side of things is like people want things as we, as we talked about earlier about now, and they want it straight away, and they and they want to basically feel good now, you know, this, which is one of the things about the lottery. Um, and when they, when they win, they get they get it, and they're like, oh yeah, I have it now. But there was there's no long term thinking with it because then. Though actually, a lot of people will buy a lottery ticket every day or every week for years and decades, hoping one day yeah. they're gonna win it so there's a kind of a long-termism there too i'm just thinking my dad you know buy a lottery ticket every saturday morning for 30 years you know and mm. never win but still go on with it i had to kind of shift my perspective on that just a little bit because i was like i was like i mean i've had family members around me being like oh, i'm not going to buy a lottery ticket because it's just uh you know this hope that in something that you that you're possibly going to be chosen out of something blah 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 but then i looked at it and i remember watching it i just saw an advert and it was like well the lottery fund the money goes i mean at least a percentage of the money will go to some charitable causes at the very least so if i just focus on that bit at least it means that i, I, I can feel like i'm doing something where the rest of the money goes i have no idea but maybe it would but, be more efficient to actually just give a charitable gift to absolutely. you know the cause that you really care about care about yeah yeah and, and, and incidentally that's what i've been thinking about for christmas as well um instead of giving gifts or you know stressing over what people want <laughs> um just to kind of give to a charity and whatnot because why not like it's just yeah um, i mean spends, give, give, people give, spend give, so much yeah give, give something to others uh, as a person i mean actually yeah. my my partner and i we're both turning 50 in a few weeks time and we've just decided okay. to give up our family car, which is a fossil fuel car, okay. and just shift to using a local uh, electric, um, 
you know, uh, it's called Common Wheels. So it's a car club car, sort of cooperatively owned. Now, our kids aren't yeah, too yeah. happy with it because it's going to be a real hassle getting them to <laughs> football or whatever on the weekend, yeah. football matches and stuff. But the way we see it is as a kind of a gift, you know, to future generations that, you know, we want to sort of make that leap to doing something that we think is right um and we've been mm. procrastinating for too long and um yeah and it's not a sacrifice i think of it as a gift yeah yeah for real and i think it's like when and again I, and it's just down to that it is down to that long-term thinking it's like what do what kind of what impact do you want to be having um over time we know it's bad now <laughs> like we know we know it's bad so then what decision are you going to make i re- i sold my car this year and i've just been walking everywhere all oh, right wow and I was just like, I'm just going to walk places. I mean, we are now in a lockdown or, you know, you know, Corona means that, you know, we're not going to be, I'm not going to be um, driving like that anymore. So why not just walk and just have a look and just see what's going on in the neighborhood and just, you know, and really get engaged with what's happening. Um, and so that, in, a, in one sense, that's, that was a blessing, but obviously we are a culture of convenience and cars are convenient because you yeah, but you know, of course, as you know, you know, human beings live without cars for most of human history. Um, right. So you know, we just get used to things, and those conveniences we think they're our right or our, you know, that we yeah. we can't live without yeah. them. But you know, yeah. Leonardo da Vinci did you know pretty good creative work without having a car or a phone or anything like Instagram. that. Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> no, that he could have been an Instagram addict. If he was around yep. today, you never know. You'd have been insta-famous. Um, holistic forecasting. Envision multiple pathways for civilization. Yeah, that, that's about the idea of trying to predict the future, which on one level sounds totally crazy. Of course, we can't predict the future um, because we don't know what's coming our way. Um, but... I mean, I think there are a couple of important things here. One thing is that, look, we, we need to think about what future is coming our way. Otherwise, we're only going to react too late in the present when the future yeah. hits us really, really hard. That's what happened with COVID, right? Those countries yeah. that had long-term pandemic plans in place like Taiwan have dealt with the virus much more effectively than those which had no plans in place or dismantled their planning structures like the United States, right? So... We need that kind of long-term vision for things like that. and But I think we need to be forecasting way ahead, looking way ahead. So, you know, lots of companies might do a three-year plan or think long-term thinking for them, long-term planning is five years or 10 years ahead. But I think we need to look at ultimately, if we're getting really big here and really long, about the rise and fall of civilizations. You know, in my book, I talk about how uh, there's some research showing that ancient civilizations like the Roman Empire or the Assyrians or wherever lasted on average 336 years. And the point being that, of course, all civilizations are born, they flower and decline, and ours will be the same. So there's a real question there of, you know, how do we jump onto a different civilizational pathway? Because we can't keep growing and growing forever. You know, this is what the economists want us to do or governments want us to do. Just keep on growing our economies to 3% growth. Well, look, nothing in nature grows forever, whether it's a, an oak forest or your children's feet, right? <laughs> what arrogance is it to think that an economy can keep growing beyond the boundaries of the biosphere, beyond the boundaries of the one and only planet we know that can sustain life? We're blown way beyond the boundaries in terms of 
climate uh, carbon emissions and biodiversity loss and ocean acidification so we need to learn to live within those boundaries and holistic forecasting is about just recognizing at least for a start that something you have to recognize something my kids learned actually when they were little that you can't keep blowing up the balloon bigger and bigger thinking that it's never going to burst hey it mm. is going to burst at some point so yeah let's think about how we're going to try and live differently which is exactly what you did when you gave up your car and started walking yeah does it ever frighten you does it ever frighten me you know sometimes i do this thought experiment where i imagine my children and you know I, you know you don't have to have children to do this you could have a nephew or a niece a young person in your life but you imagine a young person in your life when they're 90 years old and i do this thought experiment where i imagine my say one of my kids when they're 90 years old it's their birthday they're surrounded by family and friends and loved ones and work colleagues and neighbors yeah. and then i imagine looking out the window at their world you know and sometimes when i look out that window i see a world on fire and sometimes, depending on my mood, I see the Jetsons, you know, I see, <laughs> I see a kind yeah. of a, an eco-utopia, all sorts of things. Um, but in this thought experiment, I also imagine that, say, my 90-year-old daughter about to give a birthday speech suddenly looks over at the mantelpiece and there sees a photo of me, her departed ancestor, and decides to tell the gathered room what legacy this person left for them and for the world they live in. And, you know, I sometimes sit and do a bit of like automatic writing, sort of write down what did she say in her speech about me and the the legacy I left for people and planet and her life. And it's really confronting. But sort of behind mm. that, I think, is a kind of not an ap apocalyptic vision of the future, you know, though I do sometimes have that. You know, I watch Blade Runner 2049 and think this world could yeah. be coming, you know. Yeah. But I have a faith in humanity too. You know, I have a faith in human beings to gather together and do good stuff at a time of crisis. Like after 9-11, when local communities in New York, rich and poor, black and white, Jews and Muslims, got together and ran soup kitchens and stuff. You know, we can be pretty good in a crisis. So I do have a kind of underlying faith in humanity, which kind of balances my sometimes darker vision of where we might be going as a civilization. I mean, what about you? How do you envision that future? It, it, it worries me sometimes um, because I do think about the world and I think about, I do think about at this young age, what I'm leaving and what I'm, what seeds I'm planting and the kind of impacts that I'm having. Um, on people and kind of and what that means for a better world, a better society. I mean, again, it's probably the the reason f like I created the show was more so to kind of have those conversations to at least kind of present an option and opportunity for that to be discussed in a way. And, um, but when I close my eyes and I think about 2049, I just, I, I just would love to envisage myself sitting with my feet in front of a warm fire like and just reading or doing or being in peace and the world not disintegrating around me i would rather that i'd rather that not be an option so i always have to um think about what i would what the, the things i'd like to see and it's a lot of what is spoken about what we've been speaking about in this conversation and what you speak about in this book it's how the 
how the decisions that we've made can really put the converse, put the country or the or the world in a in a direction. And we need to be very we need to be forward thinking and be mindful of that as something. Um there was a show on BBC this year. Was it this year or the end of last year? I think it was called it's called Years and Years. And I don't know if you watched it. And it basically it chronicles the life of this family um for the ne- for ten years from twenty twenty or twenty nineteen, twenty twenty. Uh, but I think it's 10 or 15 years. It's 15 years from 2020 to uh, 2035. And essentially there's a bit um, within the, and the grandma is really, is very much like, you know, you can't complain when we vote for the people that we do, when we make the decisions that we do, <laughs> when we and when we give the power to things that we actually have control of, when we, don't consider our our young our young people. We, I mean, you know, we, all these different things. Like, it was this really powerful monologue, and it was like, and it was, and that made me think. I was like, actually, we we can't, we can't, we can't look back and think, oh, how did we get here? Because we weren't thinking about what's going to happen in the future. We're just thinking about what we want now. Um, and yeah, so it does worry me. And um, but I've just got to remember that I've got to just try my best in each thing and at least have the conversations. Um, and try to act on what I can. Well, I think a lot of it is about conversation, actually. It's about talking to family and friends and loved ones and strangers about the big questions about where we are going. You know, you can sit down today and find someone and talk to them about, well, what legacy are you going to leave for your family, for your community and for the living world? And you could probably talk about that for hours. Mm. Or you can ask a, a question about, what should be the ultimate goal of the human species or how do we balance our responsibilities to current versus future generations? There's all sorts of, I think, really important long-term questions we can have and in some sense change the world one conversation at, at a time by by seeing things from a bit of a different perspective and realizing that, you know, whether you're talking about empathy or compassion or whatever word you use, that we need to bring future generations and the living world of the future into the room when we're having those discussions we have to extend our empathy not just across space but through time you have some good ancestor conversations written on here um and i just want to ask my question for the good for us as good ancestors how can we do this together? I feel like people feel like they have to do it by themselves. And it's this, it's like, I have to do this because I want to do this for my family. How do we do it for our street? How do we do it for our friends, our communities? How do we? Well, look, I think people are doing it together all the time. I mean, as you just asked that question, I was thinking back to the you know, a few months ago during some of the Black Lives Matter protests where and where I live in, in Oxford and we were occupying the street, right? And, um, you know, it was all about bringing down a statue of Cecil Rhodes, you know, an, an architect of the apartheid regime. And me as an individual, on an individual level, I was I felt in a kind of a pincer movement of my own white privilege because on, on my left-hand side was this statue of Cecil Rhodes in this Oxford college where I had actually gone as a student and and had benefited from education there and a couple of hundred yards on the other side was 
a, a library called the Codrington Library in All Souls College, which was made from slave money, right? And I had yeah. studied there 30 years before. But, you know, there I was on the street in a communal act, which was about, on the one hand, bringing down the statue, but it was also about deep intergenerational justice. It was about wanting to pass on a different world to future generations. And that's why you may know Leila F. Saad's great book, Me and White Supremacy, where she talks on the first page about being a good ancestor. You know, And I think these are communal struggles about people working together. Whatever the issue is that motivates you, it could be racial injustice. It might also be and equally be fears around climate change and how those things overlap. In fact, there's a really great recent TED talk by David Lamy called, uh, I think it's called something like, why environmental justice and racial justice are the same or, or, or connected or something like that. Really, really interesting. But, you know, different things motivate different people about the long term. But ultimately, it is a collective struggle. And um, there are all those future generations yet to come. How are we going to honor them? So there was something I wanted to ask just about with regards to the statues and pulling them down. Uh, what did you think about what happened this summer with regards to, you know, tearing down the statues of slave masters and people who benefited from slave the slave trade down in Brighton and then you know the um, and the revelations of Winston Churchill's n- not the most noblest characteristics <laughs> um what do you think about that just as ancestors i think in general you know challenging those artworks by pulling them down is you know a pretty good thing um to try and reinterpret history, which has been interpreted one way and could easily be interpreted uh, another and to not see, you know, someone like Cecil Rhodes or whatever, or uh, Winston Churchill as a kind of a savior, but also as, as purveyors and masters of imperialism. Um, so I think it's really good to challenge that stuff. Um, my personal view is things like if you pull down a statue, it's probably worth keeping somewhere rather than getting rid of it totally and and relabeling it, giving it a new narrative so that we don't lose history, but we remember why we pulled it down, what it used to mean, and what it could mean uh, instead. So I'm basically broadly in favor of those kinds of acts, you know, partly because I recognize, you know, in my own life, as I was saying, you know, I'm a I'm a product of 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 white privilege in my case, you know, growing up in Australia. You know, I, the high school I went to was on land that was stolen from indigenous people, right? And mm-hmm. that even didn't occur to me me until last summer, uh, the summer that's just passed. It never occurred to me that what made it possible yeah. for me to walk through the gates of my school, my local state primary school, well, high school when I was in 1981, when I was 11, that it was only possible for me to do that because that land had been stolen from the Kurungai people who had occupied that land for thousands of years. Um, And I think we can't be good ancestors unless we look into the past and confront it in all its glories and all its destruction. Mm. Some final questions before we wrap up. Um, Are you optimistic are you optimistic? And given the book, I could guess the answer, but are you optimistic? You know, I don't like the word optimism because I associate it with 
a kind of glass half full attitude that you might have in spite of the evidence. You know, you're just going to smile and think it's going to be okay. I rather the word hope rather than optimism. And for me, hope is about recognizing that you might succeed in achieving what you want to achieve, but you could well fail. The odds may well be against you, but you're going to stick with it because you care, right? So, Mm. look, I know the struggles about being a good ancestor are difficult. This is about challenging deep stuff, about challenging the domination of consumer capitalism, the domination of nation states focused on their near term interests, the domination of a, a democratic system which is, you know, incredibly short term, just trying to get votes for the next election and 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 say yes to your corporate donors. This is tough stuff. But, you know, I I am, as I said, hopeful because of what human beings have done through history, our capacity to act collectively. We are more social than almost any other creature. That is how we have evolved. That is how we've survived by helping each other when we're there are predators coming or when there is food scarcity. You know, that's mm-hmm. what group selection is about to go back to Darwinian sort of theory. You know, we haven't mm-hmm. just been selected for our individualism, but also for our group cooperative traits, you know, so we can do this stuff, you know, we can. You know, we can build the Great Wall of China. We can build the sewers of Victoria in London. We can get engaged in social and political movements with long horizons and and stay true to them. It's not easy. It requires enormous energy and dedication. And God, it's difficult sometimes. But we can all be time rebels dedicated to intergenerational justice in the long term. Yeah. What is one thing that brings you joy or excitement? Ha, that's a good question. I think changing my mind. The economist John Maynard Keynes once said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? And I love it when that happens. I get a special kind of thrill when, for example, my prejudice is a challenge. So (laughs) I was just thinking then of, I used to walk past this um, homeless guy who lived, around the corner from where I live in, in, in East Oxford. And for years I walked past him and never took any notice of him. Um, he was always used to sort of mutter crazily to himself and um, be picking up cigarette butts off the ground. And I thought I, we'd have nothing in common. Well, one day I stopped to talk with him. It turned out we had an enormous amount in common. We both studied philosophy at Oxford university. We had a developed a deep friendship based on our love of Aristotle, Nietzsche and pepperoni pizza, you know, and he became a great friend of mine. And I realized, of course, I was totally wrong about him and who he was. And that recognition that I was wrong, I think, is just, you know, when the scales fall from your own eyes because you challenge your own prejudices, those are really exciting moments in life because it tells us that we can all change. You know, we can all be different. We can all evolve within our own lifetimes. Yeah. Okay. And finally, I'd like people to leave here with a bit of an insight into what um what kind of moves you so what is a book that has moved you recently uh what have you watched that has moved you recently and what have you listened to that has moved you recently so the book i'd say is octavia butler's sci-fi novel the parable uh of the sower uh which is a dystopian you know sci-fi 
book um and but it's very challenging and very raw um so what's the next thing is a film uh, yeah what have you been watching what have i been watching that's challenged me let's just think well i just saw this brilliant film which is actually i've got a sneak preview it's out in a couple of months time it's called youth verse gov and youth first gov and it's about the struggle of 21 young americans who have filed a landmark lawsuit against the u.s government on behalf of both current and future generations fighting for their right to a clean climate and healthy atmosphere so it's about a, a really inspiring legal battle so it's a documentary it's going to be out um in a couple of months from now youth first gov and what's the youth third thing gov. and what have you listened to what have you listened to that has been challenging or has moved you? What have I listened to or that's been challenging? You know, I tell you what I've been listening to recently. My kids telling me I'm spending too much time working. Um, okay. So it's a kind of a, a challenging kind of music uh, in a way when they're now old enough to really say, look, dad, what are you doing? You know, what kind of parent are you? Um, are you doing it the right way? You know, you've written books about empathy. Are you really being empathic you know, by <laughs> staying up till midnight working and that kind of thing? So um, that's what I have listened to. I've been trying to listen better to my own kids. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on Time to Talk. It's been an amazing pleasure and I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's a the good ancestor how to think long term in a short term world guys it's going to be in my show notes and it will be linked to my ukbookshops.org because we want to support independent bookshops support in those indie, indie bookshops and um Absolutely. and they thanks selling mine as well yeah and thank you so much for having me on a really been stimulated by this conversation it's got my brain totally buzzing thank you thank you so much thank you so much As ever, I want to thank my guest, Roman Krasnarek, for joining me on the show today. Please check out the book and you can find it in the show notes below. Don't forget, you can find me on Instagram at byalexholmes and on Vero, vero.co forward slash alexreads. And also drop me an email at tttalkpod at gmail.com. Remember, you can connect with me in any of those ways. Just drop me a message. Time to Talk is produced by Pure Creation Media and my good friend Ryan Nile. So I want to say big thanks and big shout out to him. So do go and find him for all your podcasting needs and inquiries. If you are interested in supporting me and the podcast, you can lend your support over at Steady. Steady is similar to Patreon, but I think it's a bit more user friendly for European creators, European creators people who are not in north america choose a plan that makes sense for you and you can support the show to become the best possible show it can be head over to steadyhq.com forward slash alex holmes to join the compassionate community it helps keep this show afloat and it helps me connect with you on an even more personal level so and I finally i want to say thank you for joining me i will catch you next time look after yourself <laughs>